Welcome to episode 63 of the Deeper Christian Podcast. This is the podcast to help you study God's Word, know Jesus intimately, and discover how you can build your life around Jesus Christ. I'm Nathan Johnson, and in today's episode, I want to finish this sermon talking about this idea of the grand reality of seeing Jesus throughout the entirety of Scripture. Let's dive in. Over the last two weeks, I've been playing a portion of a sermon that I gave recently at my church where I was preaching about this idea of seeing Jesus throughout the entirety of Scripture. Now, if you haven't listened to those, I would encourage you to pause and, and go back and listen because technically just hearing the flow of this sermon leading up to today's session is really, truly amazing. Now, I want to focus specifically today on the death of Christ. So part three of this sermon is going to be looking at just kind of walking through the last week of Jesus saying, just beginning to realize that God has planned even from the beginning of the foundations of the world to reveal Christ and his death. I love that idea that, that the lamb was slain before the foundations of the world. Well, we're going to be talking a little bit about that. Now in this sermon, I'm referencing several pictures and slides that I have on a screen. If you'd like to download a PDF version of that and just kind of follow along as I preach, you can see and download that PDF in the show notes for this episode. Just go to deeperchristian.com forward slash 63 for episode number 63 to download that reference. Now, without further ado, here's the last and final portion of my sermon, The Delight of Discovery. Hi, I want to talk about one other concept with you, and it's just the death of Christ. I don't, I don't know if you ever walked through the death of Christ in terms of just the Christophany that God has built in his word in terms of the death of Christ. But it is, I literally ponder it often, and I am just constantly, I, I stay amazed all the time of who Jesus is. And again, it was so neat being in Israel because, you know, we got to see the sights that this happened. And on our final day, we got to go to the garden tomb, and we, we took communion, and we worshiped at the very location that, that Christ was crucified, I mean, and then he was buried, and then he rose again. And there was something about being right smack dab in the middle of that, and you begin to see all the Christophanies through the word begin to, there it is, there it is, there it is. And it's like God through all of scripture was pointing one direction. And it's like, do you see it? 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 So, <clears throat> do you see it? I just want to walk you through this. This is so amazing. Ha, the week before the crucifixion, you realize that Jesus came in on what we would call the triumphal entry. And he started on the top of the Mount of Olives, which is right across from Jerusalem. So you have the, the, the city over here, and then you have this brook Kidron, and then here's the Mount of Olives. And he started on the Mount of Olives, and he, he got on a donkey, and he, he wound his way down, went across brook Kidron, and went into the temple. Listen to this. Uh, Matthew 21. Now when they drew near Jerusalem and came to the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two disciples, saying to them, Go into the village opposite you, and immediately you will find a donkey tied and a colt with her. Loose them and bring them to me. And if anyone says to you, uh, if anyone says anything to you, you shall say, The Lord has need of them, and immediately he will send, send them. <clears throat> and this was done that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by the prophet. So this is Zechariah 9 9. 9, 9. Tell the daughter of Zion. By the way, Zion is one of the hills in Jerusalem. So you have Mount, Mount Zion, which is the city of David, and then about 20 paces later, the Mount of Jerusalem. It's the same mountain, but they, they split it Mount Zion, Jerusalem. But tell the daughter of Zion. So Literally declare from Jerusalem, Behold, your king is coming to you, lowly and sitting on a donkey, a colt, the fowl of a donkey. And of course you ask, why a donkey? And you realize that in that culture, if you entered into a city 
on a stallion as a commander, it meant you're bringing war. You're bringing division. But in that culture, as an army military person, if you were to enter into a city riding a donkey, it was a sign that you were offering peace. And do you know how our Savior came? Offering peace. He came lowly, riding upon a donkey. So the disciples went and did as Jesus commanded them, and they brought the donkey and the colt and laid their clothes on them, and he sat upon them. And a very great multitude spread their clothes on the road, and others cut down palm branches of the trees and spread them on the road. Then the multitudes who went before those who followed cried out, saying, Hosanna to the Son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna. As Jesus was winding down this very steep passage down the Mount of Olives. It's interesting, he gets to the bottom of the Mount of Olives and he turns his head and he looks at Jerusalem and he begins to weep and he begins to mourn. And he says, <clears throat> when he saw the city, he wept over it saying, if you had known, even you, especially in this your day, the things that made for your peace because you did not know the time of your visitation. Do you know what Jesus is actually weeping over the fact? They weren't ready for his coming. He says, you should have been ready. I mean, yeah, you just did the Hosanna thing, but but you're not prepared. The whole city is sleeping. I mean, why, why aren't you ready? And, and do you know what he's poking at? And you can study this out if you want. But if you did a study of Daniel chapter 9, Daniel 9 is talking about the coming of the Messiah. And what is so phenomenal is when you actually start putting all the pieces together with the Jewish calendar, what you'll find is that the day that Jesus went on a donkey into Jerusalem, did you realize it was prophesied by Daniel? To the very day. I mean, when you actually count out the days and stuff based on a Jewish calendar, when it was prophesied and you count out the week stuff and you actually look at the day that Jesus would have entered into Jerusalem, it was prophesied to the very day. And Jesus says, you could have known. Hey, you could have been ready. There's this thing in the Roman world called the Roman triumph. Just, I got back from Israel and I came across this new book that just came out. And I was really excited about reading it because Basically, it's someone's story about her experience in Israel. And I was like, oh, that'd be fun. So I got the audio book and I was listening to it. And I was like, whoa. And it's a lot of stuff that we talked about when we were in Israel. But there was this piece in it that I'd never seen before. So I figured I might as well bring you in on it, if that's okay. I just want to read you a little piece of this book. Because it was just like, that is amazing. I've never seen it before. And it's called The Roman Triumph. <clears throat> so this is what was written. Just, just ponder this in light of Jesus, all right? <clears throat> So the Bible tells us that Jesus was born during the reign of the Roman emperor, Caesar, Caesar Augustus, who was the son of the assassinated Julius Caesar. Now, Caesar Augustus vowed to build a temple to honor his murdered father and to hold a dedication ceremony to proclaim his father as divine or as a god. During that ceremony, a comet streaked through the sky, a sign that Caesar Augustus declared as confirmation that he himself must be the son of God if his father, Julius Caesar, was God. Now, you've got to think this through in terms of a Roman intellect. So this is, this is a Roman mindset. From that period on, the Roman people believed that Caesar Augustus to be, divine, to be the divine son of God. What began as a way to honor conquering generals soon became limited to the emperors, proclaiming their sovereignty and their divinity. Now listen to what, what they would do. So, speaking of the Roman triumph, the ceremony began with the Roman soldiers who assembled at the Praetorium. Does that word sound familiar to you? If it doesn't, do note that Jesus was taken to the Praetorium. That's where, they were, that's where he was flogged. So they would start at the Praetorium where the guards were stationed. 
Then a purple robe, the color of royalty, will be placed on the emperor, and a wreath will be placed upon his head. Hail Caesar, they would shout, and the people would chant, Triumph! As the emperor and the guards wound their way down the Via Sacra in Rome to arrive at their capoline, or their head hill. Isn't this weird? There a bull would be sacrificed by someone who had been carrying an instrument of death. And the emperor would then be offered a bowl of wine, which he would refuse or sometimes pour out upon the head of the sacrificed bull. Finally, the emperor would ascend the steps of the Capitoline, or the head hill, accompanied by someone on his left and someone on his right. And the entire population would declare him as their savior, their divine Caesar, proclaiming, Hell, Caesar, Lord, and God. Then they would all look for signs in the heavens to confirm their leader's coronation. Ray, the tour guide, brilliantly described how the destruction, description of Jesus' last days in Mark's gospel, including Jesus' suffering, perfectly paralleled the Roman procession known as a triumph. After Jesus had been sentenced to death by Pontius Pilate, he was taken to the praetorium in Jerusalem by the Roman guards. There they stripped him, threw a purple robe over him, and placed a crown of thorns upon his head. Then they mockingly worshipped, saying, Hell, the king of the Jews, and bowed down to him, striking him and spitting on him. And they had when they had tired of the sport, they led him along the Via Dolorosa to be crucified, Jesus carrying his own cross, his instrument of death, until he collapsed beneath it. A passerby, Simon of Cyrene, was forced to carry Jesus' cross for him to Golgotha, the place of the skull, or Head Hill. There the soldiers laid Jesus on the cross and crucified him along with two revolutionaries, one on his left and one on his right. They offered him sour wine, which he refused. Pontius Pilate had insisted that a sign, a, a titulus, a placard that identified his so-called crime, reading the king of Jews, be nailed to the cross of Christ. And he suffered, as he suffered, the crowd around him taunted him, Hail, the king of the Jews! They hur hurled blasphemies and insults on him. And once Jesus gave up his spirit, there was an earthquake. And, and the curtain at the entrance of the Holy of Holies in the temple was split in two from top to bottom. Signs indeed. But perhaps the greatest irony was what was said by the Roman centurion who had watched the entire event. Surely this man was the Son of God. Isn't that amazing how God took a pagan cultural ceremony and used the enemies of God to say, he's the king. He's the emperor. He's, he's divine. Interesting, crucifixion happened on Passover, the Feast of Passover. And if you want to study that out, you can look at Exodus chapter 12. <clears throat> Interesting, if you go back to the original uh, Passover, you remember, here, here they are, they're, they're slaves in Egypt. And after nine of the plagues that Moses did, he says, hey, I'm going to kill the firstborn. So what you need to do as a good Israelite or a good Jew, you need to take this little lamb and you need to bring the lamb into your house for four days, one day for each of the hundred years that you were a slave. Which probably meant by the end of those four days, I mean, you know what happens if you bring an animal home for with your kids, Right? You know, you, you, probably, you probably give it a name like Chops, right? And uh, so here's our lamb named Chops, and it becomes like a family pet, and you start to love on it, and, you, and you're sleeping with it. It becomes, which meant when you had to sacrifice it, there was a greater pain. And at the end of those four days, you would take the lamb, and you would kill the lamb, and what they would do is they had to roast the entire lamb to have the Passover celebration. So what they would do is, uh, it's, a lot of scholars presume they probably use a pomegranate, a pole, a piece of wood, because of the fact that you know, in a lot of heat, pomegranate wouldn't boil, and you couldn't boil, boil the animal. So what they would do is they would take the lamb, and they would put a, a piece of wood, a pomegranate pole, up through the lamb to hold the lamb. And in order to actually cook it properly, they would have to open up the, the chest cavity or the shoulders, so they would put a little crossbar of wood in the lamb to hold, open the, to hold open the lamb. So think about this. 
original Passover. You have this lamb literally skewered on a cross. And in order to cook the entire thing, they would gut the lamb. Sorry about the grossness. But they would gut the lamb, and you had to cook the entrails, but you, wanted, you didn't want them inside. So they would wrap the entrails around the head of the lamb, literally symbolizing a crown. And a Jew would say it's a crown of victory. Why? Because that's what allowed them to escape. And you would take some of the blood and you would put it upon the doorpost of your house. And some scholars have suggested that, that when, you, when you put it on this side and you put it on this side and you put the blood on the top, this blood would drip down and you, you, there, even there you would have a sign of a cross. And then they would, they would take the roasted lamb and they would eat the lamb and it was by the blood of the lamb that they received their freedom from Egypt. And then every year they were to go back and they were to reenact this thing. So during the time of Jesus, you were to take your little lamb and you were to take it down to the temple because it was, it was to be offered as a sacrifice down at the temple. So what they would do is they, they would take you down to the temple and they would put a little placard with your family's name on the little lamb. And that way you can give the lamb over to the high priest and the high priest would go and they would do the sacrificial stuff and they would come out the other side with your lamb that has your little family name placard on, the, on it. Isn't it fascinating that here's Jesus, which the writer of Hebrews says that he is our Passover lamb. He's our perfect spotless lamb. In fact, 1 Peter 1.19 says that you are redeemed with the precious blood of Christ as of a lamb without blemish and without spot. And just think about this. Just as these little lambs had a family placard around their neck, did you know that Jesus had a family placard above his head? It's hilarious to me, but it says that now Pilate wrote a title and put it on the cross, and the writing was Jesus of Nazareth, the King of the Jews. Then many of the Jews read this title for the place where Jesus was crucified was near the city, and it was written in Hebrew, Greek, and Latin. And when, therefore, when the chief priests of the Jews, sorry, therefore, the chief priests of the Jews said to Pilate, Do not write the King of the Jews, but he said, I am the King of the Jews. And Pilate answered, What I have written, I've written. Isn't it interesting? Here is Pilate with no backbone. Here is Pilate who is being manipulated and schmoozed and during this whole scene. And we understand that. You know, uh, Caesar gave Pilate basically one more chance. I'm going to send you to, uh, to Palestine, and you're going to be over there in this land called Israel. And, hey, you're going you're to be the head guy. However, there's all this insurrection stuff happening. If there's a problem, you're dead, and I'm going to replace you. This, is, this, was, this was Pilate's last opportunity. And isn't it interesting? The Jews obviously knew that because when you read the storyline— the Jews are manipulating Pilate. Pilate, hey, you call yourself a friend of Caesar, but if you don't kill this man, we're going to tell him that you let, uh, you let another king live. And Pilate was being manipulated by the Jews to bring about the death of Christ. Do you see that? And, that was, and, it's, and it's, it's documented in, uh, in, in uh, other manuscript stuff. I mean, he, he was a pushover. He was, this was his last chance. So Pilate does not have a backbone. Pilate will not stand up for anything. Pilate was was trying to get rid of with Jesus, gave him to Herod, then he brought him back and just said, fine, I washed my hands, the whole thing, this is your deal. Isn't it interesting, though, the one time that Pilate stands up, the one time he says, what I have written, I've written, was this. Isn't that mind-boggling? He said, push over the entire time. Why is he defending a stupid plaque? Of all the things, it's like, all right, I'll change that one. But he says, no, I refuse to change it. I'm a man. <laughs> do you know why the high priest, do you know why the Jews were so frustrated? Do you know why they wanted it changed? Because a good Jew thinks in acronyms. 
that you would see things and you would take the first letter of things. And, and that's, that's how they thought. That was, that was cultural today. And when they saw the placard, this is, this is the Hebrew line, when you took the first letter, do you know what it spells? Jesus' family name. The unspeakable name of God. Yahweh. Jehovah. Do you know what was placed above the head of Jesus? His name. By the way, if you did the Hebrew letter thing for this, do you know what it says? Hand, behold, nail, behold. That's what Yahweh stands for. Wow. It says at the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice saying, Eli, Eli, lama shabbatani, that is my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And we've said this so many times here. But he's not really saying, God, you've left me. Really what's happening is he's saying, folks, Psalm 22. And the Jews of that day, you, you would literally begin to quote a psalm. You would really designate a psalm by the first line of that phrase. So by the fact that Jesus says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He's not saying, God, you've left me. He said, look, Psalm 22. Do you know what Psalm 22 is all about? The crucifixion. And you read that thing, and, and as you walk through it, and I'll, I'll let you do it on your own. As, as you walk through it, it's, it's literally describing the very events that they pierced my hands and my feet. Here they are, they're gambling for my clothing. Here they are, they're mocking me. Hey, there's, sold, I mean, there's prisoners on the side of me dying. I mean, literally, they would have looked and said, we're living in this. And a thousand years before the crucifixion, Jesus is saying, do you not remember that psalm that's describing what you're seeing in this very moment? But why does it say the ninth hour? Why, why is scripture so specific on the time? Luke's account says, now it was the sixth hour, and there was darkness over all the earth until the ninth hour. Then the sun was darkened, and the veil of the temple was torn in two. And when Jesus had cried out with a loud voice, he said, Father, into, into your hands I commit my spirit. And having said this, he breathed his last. Why the ninth hour? Well, one, it was, the, it was an hour of prayer. But you got to remember, this was happening on the day of Passover, folks. Interesting. Right before this point, uh, what they would do, they had a, every family in Israel had a Passover lamb. And it was their family Passover lamb. But Israel had a Passover lamb for the year. Do you know what they would do? Just think about this. There was this town three to five miles away from Jerusalem called Bethlehem. And it was in this town that they would raise the sacrificial animals for the temple in Jerusalem. It's a great little town. A lot of history had happened there. But that's where they would raise the sheep. In fact... Almost every scholar would say that at the birth of Christ, the shepherds in the field were not just a normal shepherd. They were Levitical shepherds. They were caring for the sheep that would go to the temple. And what's interesting is once they would find a sheep, they would go and, and the, the Levites would go and they would investigate the little sheep. They would look for the perfect little lamb for the sacrifice. They were scrutinizing, examining, testing the little lamb. Do you know when that took place? The same time that Jesus was being tested and examined as the perfect lamb in front of the high priest in an illegal trial. And during an illegal trial that should not have happened, there's actually six of them, but during, but during those trials, do you know what the high priest was doing? He was examining and testing and actually testing the perfect Lamb of God. At the same time, one of his Levites was down in Bethlehem scrutinizing, testing, examining a little lamb. 
you know what they would do if they found the perfect little lamb? They would take the little lamb and they would put it in a manger. And they would take that little lamb and they would wrap it in swaddling clothes. Do you know why? It's because on the three to five mile journey from Bethlehem to Jerusalem, you didn't want that little lamb to scramble around and to freak out. Because if that little lamb scrambled around, he may break his leg and he would no longer be the perfect sacrifice. So they would take this little lamb and they would put it in a manger and wrap them with swaddling clothes. Which is why when the angels looked at these Levitical shepherds and said, the sign for you is going to be this babe in a manger wrapped in swaddling clothes, what they would have heard that as, that's a lamb, a perfect lamb for a sacrifice done at the temple. And they came in and they knew it was the Christ. Why? Because here is the perfect little lamb in swaddled clothes lying in a manger. And they would take this little lamb and they would take it over to the temple. And at the proper hour, do you know what hour that they would sacrifice the Passover lamb for all of Israel? It was the ninth hour. It's three in the afternoon. Think about this. Here's Jesus, bloodied, bruised. He's been scourged. He's been mocked. He can barely breathe. And you realize that crucifixion was one of the most brilliant forms of death. One, because it was so ridiculously painful. Most of the time you die of suffocation. Uh, you know, your, your hand, by the way, this all was a hand, so whether it was here or whether here, doesn't really matter. I would probably argue here, because this would, your, your hand would rip out of the, the nail. But here you can put it between the two bones, and you'd be stuck. And they would nail your two feet. Uh, typically you're right along the ground level. Uh, and they wanted you as close to the ground as possible as, as a sign of mocking. In other words, your, your feet may have only been a couple inches off the ground. You're so close, but so far away. And then you'd be eye level with everyone who walked past you. And it's interesting that here's Jesus being nailed, and, and uh, he's, he's, he has to push himself up in order to get a breath. And it'll be so painful you, you collapse, but then you have to breathe, so you have to push yourself up. And you do this for hours. And you realize that Jesus was hanging for hours and hours. And from the third, uh, from the sixth hour to the ninth hour, there was darkness. But at the ninth hour, at the exact same time that down at the temple, the high priest had taken the Passover lamb for the year. And as the high priest put the, put the knife to the Passover lamb's throat and slit the throat of the Passover lamb, do you know what was taking place? It says that Jesus gave up his spirit. And the Passover lamb died at the exact same time as the Passover lamb. I don't know about you, it's like... And it says that there were signs in the sky. An earthquake happened. Sun was darkened. And down at the temple, the veil, which was not some little tiny piece of fabric, by the way. It was, it was the, the width of, of a man's hand. It was roughly four to six inches thick. And the reason is you didn't want that thing to move. Because <laughs> if there was a breeze, God might get out. So yeah, it's a thick curtain <laughs> so that, you know, we can keep him in. And you realize that it wasn't, and it was, it was 30 feet tall, you recognize. So if someone's going to rip this thing, you, you would rip it. From the bottom, you couldn't, but that's how. But it was ripped from the top to the bottom. Now we learn in the Old Testament that the color of that veil, it was scarlet, blue, and purple, colors of royalty, with this design of the cherubim and pomegranates in it. And it says the writer of Hebrews says that the veil of the temple is the body of Christ. It was torn, and isn't it interesting if you were beaten and bruised and bloodied and hung on a cross that your body the colors of your body would be blue and scarlet and purple. 
just as the colors of the, of the veil. <clears throat> Go back 4,000 years from now, but 2,000 years before Christ, God had chosen this man by the name of Abraham. He says, Abraham, I want you to go to this place that you know not of, and I want you to follow me. You're going to have to live in dependence because you have no idea where you're going. I want you to trust me. I want you to go. And he goes and settles in this land called Cana. Uh, he lived on this mountain called Hebron. In fact, that's why they became known as Hebrews, is because they came from Hebron. And one day, and you know this, you know, he tried in the flesh to produce the son, and it was Ishmael, and God says, I reject that because I will not accept anything of your flesh but will you let me birth something? And so Isaac is born, truly a God-given miracle. And when this lad was roughly, you know, probably 12, 13, 14 years old, God looks at Abraham and says, I want you to take your son. I want you to go down the road. I want you to go to a place that I will show you. Again, it's a place of dependency. You're going to have to trust me in this. And I want you to offer your son as a sacrifice. The writer of Hebrews says that by faith, Abraham left. And hey, they never seen anybody raised from the dead. So Abraham's assumption is, well, even if I kill him, God's going to have to raise him from the dead because this is the promise. He is the promise. He, he is my beloved son, and he is the promise that God has given me, the covenant. And it says that Abraham took his son, and they went to this mountain, Mount Moriah. And it says that, uh, so God says, take your son, your only son, Isaac, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah, and offer him there as a burnt offering on the one of the mountains of which I will tell you. So he makes his way over. Get this, this is so mind-boggling to me. But it says, so Abraham took the wood. They, they got to the, the edge of the mountain. He told his, told his servants, hey, stay here with the animal, with the donkey. We're gonna come up. Me and my son are coming back. He had faith. It says that he took the wood of the burnt offering and laid it on his son Isaac. That Isaac was carrying his own wood for the sacrifice. Doesn't that sound familiar? And they make their way up the top of this hill. Do you know what hill that was? Mount Moriah is Jerusalem. Do you know where God led Abraham to sacrifice his only begotten son? At the same place where God, 2,000 years later, sacrificed his only begotten son. You know the story. Abraham takes, binds his son, puts him on the altar, gets ready to take the knife and bringing down upon Isaac. And it says that uh, God stopped him and God offered this ram. So Abraham went and took the ram and offered it as a burnt offering instead of his son. Get this. And Abraham called the name of the place, which is Jerusalem, the Lord will provide. Because he provided a ram. But it's also Christophonic that it's pointing to a greater reality. Because you know what the Lord's going to provide? A true sacrifice. In this spot, now, if you talk to a good Jew today, this is my interpretation of, of Jerusalem. It's bad, I know. This is like one of Eric's illustrations. Uh, just, just, just go with it. Uh, so this is the hill of Jerusalem, okay? Uh, there's a, it it's kind of has two sections. Now, it's interesting that uh, it says that the threshing floor that David bought, right? You remember this story? Remember David bought the threshing floor to build a temple? The threshing floor would, would never have been at the very top of the hill. And the reason for that is that when you're threshing wheat, you thresh wheat here. And the reason is that the, the wind would come up over the, up over the hill 
And as you're throwing the chaff or throwing the grain up, the wind would pick the chaff and blow it off the mountain. But it's far easier to do that here on the little ridge than it is at the very top. So when David built the temple, he built it there. But you realize, and so if you talk to a good Jew, they would say that the temple mount is where Abraham sacrificed Isaac. But that makes no sense whatsoever. Because he used to go to the top of the mountain. And you realize the top of the mountain right up here, do you know what that's called? Well, we would call it Golgotha. And doesn't it just make sense? It just makes sense to me. That if God was going to lead Abraham to sacrifice his son at a particular mountain in a particular place, it would be the exact same spot, don't you think, that he would offer his son? That's just how God works. Do you not see it? I don't know about you, I just go, Whoa. One last thing about the crucifixion. I mean, there's, there's so many layers. I wish we had hours to just walk through this. There's just layer after layer after layer after layer. I mean, it's just so beautiful that God was scripting this whole thing from the very beginning, that he was declaring the, 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 the end from the beginning. Isn't it interesting that Jesus wore a crown of thorns? It says in Matthew 27 that, and the soldiers and the governor took Jesus into the praetorium and gathered the whole garrison around him and they stripped him and put a scarlet robe, a sign of royalty on him, and they twisted a crown of thorns and put them on his head. Thorns, by the way, in that, in that area, the, 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 the tree they would have used, the thorns can grow anywhere from you know, an inch or so, but they can grow up to about four inches long. They would have taken it really carefully, put it into a crown, set it on his head, and likely beat it into his head so that the thorns would have gone into his skull. And you realize that as Jesus was on the cross, hanging on the cross, upon his head was a crown, a sign of royalty, but in this case of thorns. Why? You realize that in Genesis chapter 3, when Adam and Eve sinned, one of the signs of the curse was that the land would bring forth thorns and thistles. Think about this. Here is Jesus dying for sin. And on his head is the sign of the curse. And he was dying for the very thing that he was wearing. Isn't that beautiful? I think I've used that word about a dozen times, but I don't know any other word. It's just, whoa. Do you know how much he loved you? While you were yet a sinner, while you were shaking your fist in his face in rebellion, Christ died for you. He took your sign of the curse and was placed it upon his head. He went through the most excruciating death ever invented. And you realize it is the only form of death that I know of that you cannot do and commit suicide with. In other words, hey, you, you, can, hey, you can take a gun, you can, you can drown yourself, but you cannot crucify yourself. It demands somebody else. Because, hey, you can get this hand, you can get those two feet, but you have a doozy of a time getting that one. Someone has to crucify you. Which is why Paul says you must be crucified with Christ. And this is not something that you can whip up in your flesh. This is not something that you can produce. Why? Because you can't do this thing. It has to be done to you. His resurrection, if you follow this through, if you ever want to do a neat study, study the feast and how Jesus fulfills the feasts. But on the day of first fruits, Jesus rose from the dead. And it was the Jewish holiday, the festival of first fruits. 
We don't have time to get into it. But let me just read you what Paul says about Christ. He says, but now Christ is risen from the dead and has become the first fruits. Speaking of the fact of his resurrection on the day of the feast of the first fruits, but not only that, but he was the first one in this new line. Right? You are children. You've been brought in, but he was the first. So he became the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For since by man came death, by man also came the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all died, but even so in Christ all should be made alive, but each one in his own order. Christ the first, afterward those who, who are at Christ at his coming. That he was the prototype. That you were called to live as Christ lived. And it's like he was living the life that you were called to live. He was the prototype. He was the first one. Did it work? <laughs> yes, it did. And you're now to be the second, the third, the fourth. There you're to follow in those footsteps. Colossians says that Jesus is the head of the body of the church who was the very beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in all things he may have preeminence. Do you know what this whole thing is about? One person. That he may have the preeminence. By the way, just as a fun side note, do you know what day the day that Noah's Ark rested on the mountain? It happened to be the exact same day that Jesus rose from the dead. That the day of new beginnings for Noah in a new world was on the exact same calendar day as the resurrection. Just one after another after another. I mean, there's so many layers of this. As if God's saying, do you not see it? It's all about my son. Can I just leave you with this? Psalm 1910, one of my favorite verses. Oh, I love this. David says, Your word, that God's word, is to be desired more than gold. Yes, even more than fine gold. That if we had two pedestals and you could either choose the Bible or you could choose a whole bag of the best gold ever available, David says, You'd be wise to choose the word. But then he makes this line. Sweeter also than honey and the honeycomb. Do you know the sweetest thing they had back then was honey? And it's like David's saying, do you know what this word is? This word is honey. That when you get into it, it, it just tastes good. In fact, Jews, even to this day, do you know that when they're teaching their kids how to read Hebrew, they smear honey on the word? So they're literally licking up the word and they, they associate the taste of the word, which is sweet, with the word itself. Isn't that interesting? Why? Because this is rich. In my own translation, the word is better than gold. Yes, the best gold. Even better than the best lint dark chocolate balls that explode in your mouth. It's the sweetest thing I know of. <clears throat> and it tastes good. Do you hunger after God like that? Do you have a hunger and a thirst for him? Are, are you in a dry and a weary land begging for water? having that kind of a desperation for God Almighty? Do you, do you come to the Word and say, oh, author, who have written every page of Scripture, would you open up the Word and, and may it be honey upon my lips that it would be sweet and delightful? I don't know about you, but just walking through this kind of stuff is so delightful. It is just, I just sit back and go, wow. And the only, the only expression I have is worship. Because when I see how God built this thing, that every single page is a focus on Him, Every single page is focused on Jesus and the cross and the redemptive reality of what he's wanting to do in and through our lives. It truly is sweeter than honey. 
and it is so much more valuable than gold. Psalm 37, 4. Delight yourself in him. Would you do that? And can I just encourage you, everything we just walked through is just the tippity top of the shaved ice on top of the iceberg of all that there is. Isn't that a neat thought? That I'm to hunger and thirst after him. I'm to get to know him more, not just intellectually, but relationally. And Paul says in Ephesians chapter 1 that you'll never come to the end of it. That God is so massive and so great and so tremendous that you can spend all of eternity going after him and still not even hit the tippity top of the iceberg of all that there is. Because he's that amazing. So why wouldn't you go after him? Why wouldn't you hunger and thirst? Why, why wouldn't you just have this craving? Why wouldn't you wake up in the morning and just, oh, I've got to spend time with Jesus. Why wouldn't you want to share this with other people? Just why wouldn't, why would you just be delighted to do your own thing and be satisfied with where you're at? And why wouldn't you, just like Ezekiel, to say, yeah, there's some water at my ankles, but I want it at my throat. So I'm walking forward. God, I need more. I need you. I want you. Oh, so I'm going to seek you. And the more they seek you, I'm going to find you. And the more they find you, the more I'm going to love you. And the more that I love you, I'm going to seek you some more. Would you just get into an endless spiral of seeking him and delighting yourself in him and coming to the word and letting the word be exposed and seeing Jesus afresh? Pray with me. Jesus, Lord, I stand amazed at the reality of who you are. And how you've taken your word and how, you, how you've written the reality of your son into the word. And Lord, this, this isn't about some cute little fairy tale stories and, and wow, wouldn't that be nice. You are, you are moving and accomplishing and doing something tremendous, Jesus. And somehow I, I have missed this for so long. But the reality is every aspect of your word is declaring Jesus, Jesus, Jesus. Lord, may my life do the same thing. Could somehow I get so wrapped up in you? And could I experience your death and your resurrection to such a degree? And could I fall in love with you so much? And could I seek you and yearn after you and hunger and thirst for you and delight myself in you that your life becomes my life and somehow we're so welded together. Wow, people begin to see you through me and you renew my mind and you renew my thoughts and you renew my heart and somehow my, my language becomes your language and the, the, the way that you think is the way that I begin to think. And the way that you act is the way that I begin to act. And, and it's not because it's a what would Jesus do thing. This is, this is I'm so in intimacy and in relationship with you that I just can't help myself. God, could I have a burn? Could, could you give me a hunger? Could you give me a desperation? Could I live in dependence upon you? And may I find my delight in you. And Lord, would you open your word for you have declared the end from the beginning. I want to see Jesus. I, I want you to come alive. I want the, the pages of Scripture to be in living color. Not, not because I've walked in the places you've walked, but because you are alive and the Word is alive and active. That it is in living color. So, Lord, as the author of this book, would you give insight and revelation into the knowledge of all that you are. And, Lord, we just want to worship. Lord, I just stand back and go, Wow! Look at all that you've done. Look, look at how you scripted history. Look at culture and geography and, and all of it was pointing to you. So Lord, I dare not leave without worship 
And even if we quit singing the songs and we walk out of this building and we have lunch, I want to worship in that. As I fall asleep tonight, may that even my sleep be worshiped. May my whole life be built and wrapped up around you because you are worthy. Love you, Jesus. Wow, isn't God amazing? I just consistently look at the Word of God and just say, I love Jesus. And I don't know about you, but I just, I'm so stirred by seeing the reality of Jesus throughout all the pages of Scripture and how God has woven history and geography and just the reality of all, all the festivals and holidays throughout the Old Testament into a picture demonstrating and showcasing Jesus Christ. Well, thanks again for listening to this episode of the Deeper Christian Podcast. As a reminder for show notes of this episode, including that PDF where you can see the slides and pictures that I was showing on the screen, please visit deeperchristian.com forward slash 63 for episode number 63. And if you've enjoyed the podcast thus far, could I encourage you to leave a rating and review on Apple Podcasts, formerly known as iTunes? It really is a blessing because Apple uses these star ratings and reviews as a way to put out the podcast in front of other people. So if you think other people should hear this podcast, please take 30 seconds and go to deeperchristian.com forward slash iTunes, and that'll just automatically send you to the place where you can leave a star rating and a review. And until next time, know I am cheering you on as you build your life around Jesus Christ.